You are listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Welcome to the fourth episode of ABS in Mind. This is your host, Deanna Asadran. We have a great lineup from the Deathwire ABS team today, so let's get started. First, Larissa Patton, our esoteric assets reporter. Larissa, what's on your mind? Hi, Deanna. I wanted to talk a little bit about commercial property assessed clean energy financing, or more commonly known as CPACE. You know, as we've watched the sector grow into um, almost a full-fledged asset class over the last year or so, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about what's driving that growth and what the future of CPACE looks like. We're actually fortunate enough to have Sandeep Srinath, director of ING's Structured Solutions Group, join us for today's podcast, so we'll be able to get his more expert perspective today. Great. Next, we have James Quirk, student loan reporter, who is joining the podcast for the first time. Welcome, James. And what's on your mind? Thanks, Diana. Well, I'd like to talk about the uh, biggest news story in the education and student loan space this week, which is the possibility that the U.S. Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, could be found in contempt of court. This stems from her attempts to collect on the debts of defrauded former students who attended the now defunct for-profit Corinthian college chain. Lastly, we have Morris Adobe, associate editor at Deathwire ABS and CMBS reporter. Maura, what's on your mind? I'm going to be talking about the relatively arcane CMBX 6 index, but it's better known to some people as the next big short. People saw it as a way to place bets on the outlook for the mall sector as that has been uh, disrupted. And I'd like to talk about why short and long investors seem to differ so much on their outlook. Thank you. As I said, a great lineup. So, Louisa, can you start us off? Sure. As I said, we're lucky enough to have Sandeep here with us today. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who has extended a number of credit facilities to both CPACE and residential PACE players, and you were an early investor in this space, you know, we've seen CPACE really break out in the past couple of years, coming out of ABS, just hearing the conversations that were being had there. There's interest and demand for CPACE and that continues. So I just wanted to get your perspective on what's driving that demand. Absolutely. I think CPACE has been growing both organically and with new states coming online. Uh, We continue to be very optimistic. ING's perspective was to get into the space early, which we did, and our our hope was to grow as the sector grows, and we, we continue to be very optimistic, like I said. With respect to what's driving the demand itself, I think it goes back to the fundamentals of CPACE. It's characteristics that is unique and, and hard to find in most other asset classes. It's a low LTV product that is attached to the property and sticks with the property and not the property owner. Prepayment risk is low. It's long-term, stable yield, so it's very attractive to investors and lenders. And it's also a great way for property owners to finance certain types of projects that are eligible. So I think it's a win-win for everybody at the seat in terms of its credit fundamentals. But going back to the demand for a quick second, uh, we have been talking to potential investors in the space earlier this year and continue to do so. And we uh, are excited with in talking to investors who are relatively new to the space. Obviously, there have been deals done in the space before, but we're very excited to talk to new folks who continue to be interested, want to get exposure to this asset class, and and, and hopefully uh, 
uh, more of these deals happen in the short order so investor demand can be satisfied. You know, one of the concerns that I've heard from investors in this space is that the demand is there, but there's just not enough supply, not enough paper. I wanted to see if that's something that you've heard as well and what is likely to shift that balance. I think that is true. I think uh, the demand for the product, for the reasons I just mentioned, is very high. Um, there is a lag in supply because it is a complex product. There has to be some education involved. Even though the investors might understand the product and want it, there is an education that is required with respect to property owners. Uh, It is a complex uh, financing source. So that coupled with lender consent from both mortgages or CMBS or wherever the, 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 the real estate is financed takes a little while. And I think those barriers continue to be broken. And and you can see that in the growth that CPES has achieved in the last uh, couple of years or so. As these barriers continue to get broken down, I think uh, there will be a lot more supply coming in. And and we've also seen a trend of construction lenders and commercial mortgage lenders looking to vertically integrate and, and offer PACE financing as part of their product set to basically finance the whole capital stack of large real estate developments. And with these kinds of interests coming into the uh, into the sector and with new states coming online, like New York State, for example, I think that the supply will catch up uh, in short order. But I think there are good reasons why there is a lag, and there are even better reasons as to why they will be overcome over time. Mm-hmm. And that leads perfectly to my next question, which is there's growing attention from the commercial real estate sector. And we've also seen White Oak, which is an asset management firm, start to fund these liens themselves. Are we seeing possible competition from REITs or insurance companies or asset management firms getting into the space and funding the liens themselves? And if so, is that a good thing, competition? I think we have to make a bit of a finer distinction in the type of entities we're talking about. Like REITs, for example, they own properties, mm-hmm. right? So, so they might be interested in getting financing for the projects they own. And depending on their size, you know, you could contemplate whether they're better off doing a captive program for their own properties or contracting with other third parties to get that financing. So the REIT demand, I think, is more in terms of getting financing. But with respect to asset managers, it depends on where in the cap stack they play. Some of the larger players are in on the senior and the mezzanine and equity tranches as well. So they might have a demand for ABS senior tranche products, as well as buying these assets, getting leverage, and hopefully doing their own securizations. Uh, Whereas insurance companies, I think, will probably tend to be investors in ABS bonds. It suits their investment needs. Uh, So I think we have to make a little bit of a finer distinction, but uh, nonetheless, like I mentioned before, more and more uh, entities on from every side of CPACE are looking into doing more deals and, and getting more supply and buying more paper. So uh, we're optimistic. And aside from actually just wanting more CPACE investments and more paper, um, have you heard any other concerns from investors, especially as we head into a downturn, given this is an untested sector? I would go back to the fundamentals of CPACE on this. In a downturn, one would argue that these are the kinds of investments that might perform relatively better than other asset classes because it is a low TV product. It is a tax-level claim, and the volatility in defaults with respect to tax-level payments versus general loan payments tends to be lower. So uh, arguably, the, the, these are the kinds of lower correlated 
products that one might want in a downturn. But on the flip side of it, in, in a downturn, we would have to look at the, the, the propensity for property owners to invest in properties during a downturn and whether there is liquidity in the market to finance larger projects in a downturn. I think I'm a little bit more, I wouldn't say concerned, that would be too strong a word, but I think relatively speaking, compared to the investor side versus the property financing side, I think my quote-unquote concern would be more on property owner side in terms of their ability and, and willingness to invest in their properties and, and renovate them versus as an investor in terms of the default risk in the deal. Finally, just wanted to get your perspective on what the landscape looks like in 2020. Will we see more deals, bigger deals, new issuers? All of the above. <laughs> and we hope to be an integral part of that expansion in the sector. We continue to like the space, like I mentioned, but I would expect uh, one or two new issuers, if not more. Other uh, existing issuers coming back to the market with their volumes uh, expanding. And hopefully with these new deals and new issuers, new investors will also be at the table, which will make pricing a little bit more competitive. So there might be a bit of tightening of credit spreads, which I think is a good thing generally for the CPA sector. Thank you so much for joining us, Sandy. My pleasure. Thank you. Actually, I had a Quick side question, side note. Any other emerging asset classes that you find interesting? There are a couple uh, that are bespoke. The one thing that we are contemplating internally is what they call RTLs, residential transition loans. I think it's getting more attention in the market. We are looking at it, but we'll have to see how things turn out. Uh, And there are different risks in that deal, so so that's one. There are a couple I've seen uh, that is asset class that have been in the market, but I think there's more institutional interest in those right now. I'm not sure it's, it's an asset class for everyone, like litigation finance, for example, pre-settlement funding. But nonetheless, I think it's a growing asset class generally in the market. Got it. Thank you, um, Sandeep and Larissa. All right, we'll have uh, James next. Uh, James, uh, could you get us started, please? I'm talking about uh, how we got to this unprecedented place with the possibility that the U.S. Education Secretary, uh, Betsy DeVos, could be found in contempt of court. And this really gets to a topic that's discussed a lot in student loan ABS, which is the potential discharge of student loan debts, whether in bankruptcy or for other reasons. So to understand how we got to this very unprecedented place, which is the possibility that we have the head of the U.S. Department of Education facing contempt charges for defying a federal court judge, Uh, we need to spin the clock back to 2015 and the collapse of Corinthian College. So Corinthian was once one of the largest for-profit chains of colleges in North America. They had about 100 locations in the U.S. and Canada combined. But after several investigations of fraud, um, the chain filed for Chapter 11 in May of 2015. And this left uh, roughly about 100,000 students at least with arguably degrees that were useless. Um, these are people that couldn't actually get paying jobs with these, uh, with these degrees. So it was a, a very big mess. And In the wake of this collapse, the Obama administration at the time created what is called the borrower's defense rule in early 2016. This created a process by which uh, defrauded students could have their loan debts discharged. So 
whatever their outstanding debt amounts were, they would be forgiven, essentially. However, one of the first orders of business that uh, Betsy DeVos enacted when she stepped into her role in late 2016 was to delay the implementation of this borrower's defense rule. Uh, So in 2017, shortly after that, a group of former Corinthian students filed suit against DeVos and the Education Department. Uh, They're represented in part by the Project on Predatory Student Lending, which is a advocacy group based out of Harvard. Their lawsuit then became a class action suit representing about 80,000 students who seek to have their student loan debt discharged, again, because their argument is that many of their degrees are useless and they were defrauded. It's important to note that Betsy DeVos has a very contentious relationship with federal oversight. The Project on Predatory Student Lending actually sued her for delaying implementation of the borrower defense rule. And in 2017, uh, the project's attempt was successful. A judge ruled that her delay was indeed unlawful. And the Education Department actually had to move forward with allowing students to go through this process and have their student loan debt forgiven. So this leads us back to the Corinthian suit. In May of 2018, a U.S. Magistrate Judge Sally Kim in San Francisco. She issued an injunction barring DeVos from collecting on the loan debts of former Corinthian students. Now, you would think that this is relatively cut and dry. However, in September of this year, just last month, the Education Department released a report that was supposed to illustrate how it was complying with this federal court order. Instead, the report actually showed how the department had seized tax refunds and wages from about 1,800 Corinthian students. So on the heels of this, the plaintiffs in that class action suit asked that DeVos be held in contempt of court for violating that court order. And in a pretty, uh, pretty scathing hearing with lawyers on Monday, Kim, the federal judge, found that DeVos was in violation of her injunction and Kim must now rule on whether to find DeVos in contempt of court for violating that court order. The question that everyone asks out of this is, does Betsy DeVos actually face the possibility of jail time here, which is how it's been reported in in some corners of the media? It's highly unlikely. (laughs) Kim's order, uh, actually from this past Tuesday, mentions only contempt or the possibility of fines and sanctions. And that's only if the Education Department refuses to comply with steps to bring itself in line with Kim's previous order. Already, the department has stated that it will work to resolve these issues, and it has said that it will refund the amount collected from those 1,800 or so students. But again, you know, the issue with DeVos really encapsulates much of the problems faced by the student loan market right now, where you have many borrowers struggling to repay their loans You have extremely cumbersome federal collection methods, and you have a federal regulatory department, their oversight, that really has put the needs of servicers and for-profit companies ahead of borrowers. So the regulatory shape of this space is essentially right now being hammered out piece by piece in the courts in cases like this, which is why it's, it's so closely watched and we find ourselves in this very unusual place. What a mess. (laughs) James, these uh, Corinthian loans in question, have any of them been securitized? 
the Corinthian loans had and uh, similar ones uh, from ITT had in the past. And um, there are a number of lawsuits playing out in connection to that. Um, the Natural National Collegiate Scholarship Loan Trust, NCSLT, that has its own very long legislative kind of battle story that's been stretching out now for more than two and a half years where these are locked in a battle with some bondholders about how these loans should be discharged and how this process should work uh, with bondholders and trustees and who gets to decide how this works. So again, it's, it's another very messy, contentious process that's all getting hammered out in court. And is there concern that this case could possibly set a precedent that would impact student loans that have been securitized, you know, outside of these Corinthian loans? Somewhat, yes. It's one of the reasons why anything having to do with the discharge of student loan debt is so closely watched, because the student loan debt is unique in that it's the only form of personal debt that can be discharged in bankruptcy. If that were to change... Um, and it's something that gets discussed, I think, on a perennial basis in the student loan world. If that were to change, there would probably be a considerable impact on student loan ABS, uh, especially with some legacy trusts. And how exactly that would work is relatively unclear. Kind of related to that a little bit, I guess, is are any of these conversations, um, you know, having a, any impact on the student refi sector or players in the student refi sector? Somewhat, yes. The credit quality of the refi sector is relatively strong, especially in comparison to some of these legacy federal student loan trusts. And we're seeing that more and more as the average age of the borrower in securitized pools gets older and older, and you can see their credit quality versus the type of ideal borrower who is in uh, those refi pools. They are usually holders of very technical degrees, they have higher salaries, and in general, they have a much easier time making repayments on their student loans versus these older FELP borrowers. FELP is the uh, the older, now discontinued uh, federal student loan program. Thank you so much, uh, James. And from defunct colleges, we'll go to defunct retailers. Uh, Maura, can we start on CMBS, please? So I wanted to talk about the CMBX 6, which, um, as I mentioned, was uh, dubbed some people, the distressed investors were looking at it as possibly the next big short. That's been the case for about two years or so. And essentially, to step back a little, there's, there, you wonder what, what are these shorts and longs fighting about um, in the CMBX 6? Because there's really little debate that uh, e-commerce, retail bankruptcies, and darkened storefronts have put a lot of stress on retail real estate markets and the way everyone we all shop continues to change. But at the same time, the shorts and longs, it's a little more nuanced than you might think. When I talk to sources um, that are betting on each side of this index, the longs aren't saying that there's no problem in real estate. It's really a matter of um, degree. The the longs are saying there's a lot of older malls that um, um, a portion of which will be uh, uh, closed down and raised, a portion that will be redeveloped as, say, mixed-use projects, and another portion that will be um, refilled or revitalized with better, you know, more, more, more um, of the moment tenants, m- maybe even 
better tenanted. I guess the the question is um, where do they differ? So the the shorts believe uh, that uh, have taken the position that the distress will play out uh, faster. Um, and since since the CMBX six index is an index backed by um, uh, largely by 2012 uh, uh, CMBS loans collateralized by. Uh, 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 Mall loans uh, originated in 2012. They're betting that the the problems and the defaults will come before the 10-year loans come due. So we're looking at another uh, two years or so um, where where the the shorts are betting the greater problems will arise. So um, so in in terms of you know thinking about where the shorts and longs are positioning themselves, I think it's important to consider that. They're not. One isn't uh, absolutely bullish on real estate. Um, they're both uh, on retail real estate. Both think there are problems. It's just a matter of degree. So, um, in this, so year to date, there the longs have been uh, have won the bet essentially. Um, the CMBX six BB minus and BB tranches. The dollar pricing have. Um, um, have year-to-date uh, both strengthened. Um, they've risen. The dollar price for the triple B minus tranches uh, has risen seven, about seven to ninety-one point four seven uh, dollar pricing um, around that area, and the uh, double B has risen about twelve to um, eighty, the, the mid-eighty range, um, and that's stayed. Fairly steady for um, in recent in the recent month until um, the past week or two. There's there's been a little bit of uh, wobbling, uh, which has been interesting. But um, again, it's it's um, um, the shorts and longs have different views on uh, how significant that that wobbling, uh, the, the the sort of flattening of that um, that pricing uh, has is um but um the forever 21 bankruptcy has sort of put the cbx 6 under the microscope again interesting so uh did it wobble you know was the wobbling uh, driven by the forever 21 uh, bankruptcy you think or sources think actually it's unclear some uh my sources say it may have impacted to some degree but you know there has been a lot of volatility in the market broadly the um the uh, you know the, the the short argument is that there are about um, there are there are about 20 or so forever 21 stores in the malls that are contained in this index. Um, so when the closure announcement was released um, after the bankruptcy filing, it showed that uh, only five of the of the actual stores would be closing. So that was uh, you know viewed as more positive than it could have been uh, for the uh, for the index. Yet the, the, the yet the index index um, the spreads did widen a bit um, and and have have stayed slightly slightly wider um, since the, uh, the Forever 21 filing. So it it may have been a factor because some people view it as just being the the tip of the iceberg that all those for Forever 21s will ultimately close. But it is hard to sort of uh, suss out uh, what impact. Uh, each move has since these are large, large pools of uh, of loans that um, that you're looking at. 
And I guess uh, lastly, from what you um, hear in the market, uh, what could be a catalyst for a change in this um, index's momentum? Well, it, some people say it could be macro, if, uh, but um, really if mo- I think each time there is another large retailer like Forever 21 closing, there's a pushback that, you know, this is, there's often, uh, the, the bulls say it's, 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 you know, anticipated, but I, I, I did hear more sort of a, a shift in the sentiment this, with the filing of uh, Forever 21. Um, that's a fairly, that, it's hard to argue that that is an, uh, an aging, uh, you know, it's not the same as Sears. Um, you, could, you could chalk up Sears to, um, to just being out of touch with what people want. Uh, Forever 21, you could argue, is a, you know, a, one of the older fas- uh, fast fashion retailers. But still, um, it, it, uh, to see that go dark, or many of its stores, 178 to be exact, at least are going dark, that's significant. If we see more, more um, newer names, you know, even newer names than, than Forever 21 going dark, then we'll, uh, I think uh, it, it slowly uh, will, the momentum may build towards the shorts. And like you said, well, both longs and shorts kind of agree on this one thing that, you know, they're very not, not very bullish on the um, retailer sector in general. Right. It's just how fast and, and what will the, the, the new retail sector look like? I mean, and, and, you know, how fast will the, the old, uh, the old guard uh, shut its doors? Maura, um, you mentioned Sears and Forever 21 is just the latest to fall, but we also saw Toys R Us, Claire's, even Barney's, which is a vastly different consumer profile. Is there any inkling of who's next? Is there a concern for a specific retailer? That's always the parlor game for retail. Uh, you have um, Dean and DeLuca shutting its flagship uh, New York store uh, this week. That's a smaller name, but uh, it kind of shakes people up to see such a prestigious name in distress. You also have um, Bed Bath and Beyond uh, on the list of uh, on the short list of retailers people are concerned with that that, is, that are shrinking, um, and uh, J.C. Penney. Well, I'm sad about Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> well, thank you, um, Maura, so much. Uh, and thank you, um, Larissa, Sandeep, and James for uh, making this episode happen, and Anthony for making it happen as well. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to ABS In Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.